I remember boats quite well. There was a time on San Francisco Bay when I could have told you almost every boat you could see. You're listening to Out the Gate, the new podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. That clip was sailing legend Warwick Tompkins, known in sailing circles simply as Commodore. I'll let him explain why when I welcome him to the show in just a moment. Commodore was born in 1932, and two weeks later his parents brought him aboard the 85-foot schooner Wanderbird, which was his home for the first nine years of his life. He sailed around Cape Horn at age four, an event captured on film by his dad, and part of a documentary called Cape Horn Passage in schooner Wanderbird. At nine, Commodore transitioned to living on land right here in Salsalito, but he didn't stray far from the water. Now in his 80s, Commodore has spent his entire life racing, delivering, designing, rigging, and cruising boats, and he is a wealth of sailing information. I sat down with him in his delightful Mill Valley home, models of the yachts that he'd sailed and designed, lined the walls, winches, art, and other memorabilia from his lifetime at sea filled the room, the room in which we had a great conversation that ranged all over the place, and which I hope you enjoy right now. It could be misleading to think that I am a source for the sailing community because, first of all, I'm not a club man of any sort and never have been. I never got appointed or elected to be Commodore. It's a nickname. But secondly, I don't do any of the things that most of the people do at yacht clubs. They don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't particularly like socializing and uh, small chalk. I don't remember names well. I remember boats quite well. There was a time on San Francisco Bay when I could have told you almost every boat you could see. But that's changed. More boats, more people. You mentioned your nickname, Commodore. Yeah, you should call me Commodore. Commodore, how did you come by that name? You see that cabinet over there with a winch on top? I do. That, those holes in the back were originally bolted to the forward bulkhead in the master cabin of Wanderbird. And somebody came aboard the schooner, I don't know, a friend of my parents, and when I was quite young, and they were given a tour of the schooner. She has a sweeping shear. You can see it on the model up there. Uh, so the tours always started at the bow, which is where the galley was, and they had a chance to meet the cook, whose name was Albert Harrison, for 13 years. And then they moved aft, and you were back by the foremast, and, and there was uh, quarters where the cook and the bosun slept. Next after that was the main cabin in the schooner. And originally she was a pilot schooner, so the bunks were lined up, and I think they were eight aside. And after that, there was the mainmast, a chart table adjoining the mate's cabin. So this guy met everybody on the schooner as he did the tour. And when he walked into the master's cabin, which had a solid fuel stove and a swinging a pendulous Aladdin lamp. A painting, that painting up there on the wall was over the top of that chest of drawers, and in the top drawer of the chest of drawers was this infant. That was me. 
And so this guy wisecracked, I suppose this is the Commodore. So it is a fact of life that anybody who is a junior, who lives in close proximity to somebody with the same name, who is dominant in every way, I didn't have a chance. So the nickname, first nickname stuck. And it's been Commodore ever since. It has. And I have perceived, in a sort of an epiphany not too long ago, that association with my father and all the things that he did has made my life much easier, not just because of his notoriety, fame, infamy as a sailor, a seaman, or a writer, but because he gave me a goal, and I was imprinted with the idea of being a sailor and being like him in a way that I think most father-son relationships don't enjoy. He was a dominant, effective, popular skipper, master, and he was he was really superb. And so I had a chance to watch that through the years I was growing up. That love of sailing, he it, obviously passed it's, along. No, to. it's not just a love of sailing. It, that's that's a misnomer. It's a, okay. it's a simplification of it. I describe my father as masterful. And this is correct. He was the master of the vessel, but he was very good at it. People who were the grandchildren of people who sailed on Waterbird still remember it. There were about 300 or 400 people that went through the schooner. If it's more than a love for for sailing, what is it that has kept you on the water, racing, and enjoying sailing throughout your lifetime? Responsiveness, I think, is is the real key. If you dance with someone, for example, and they're very good at it, your your partner is capable of being led or knows how to lead, then the experience is gratifying. Sailing is like that when it's good. You get on a boat, you hoist the sails, and everybody's pretty much in the same boat up to that point. Then you trim the sails and steer the boat. And if you do this correctly... The boat is like that good dance partner. You're in a dance with the wind, in a dance with the boat, in a dance with the water. Constantly making small adjustments and trying to make the boat perform to the maximum capability. Hmm. So you're judging the capabilities. You're judging all the things that are entailed in making it perform properly, including safety. And, you know, it's not just the sails. It's, it's... the depth of the water and the proximity of the coast and the shipping lanes and all of that. So it's constantly using your head, making judgments, and if you do it all right, you come out. And is the thrill in getting it dialed in just right? In the long term, I suppose, uh, I've, I've gotten in some trouble by likening landfalls to orgasm. And I think that that's a very apt comparison in the sense that it's, it's fulfilling and, and uh, it's temporal and it's, it's, it comes and it goes quickly. It's, it's very like that because you've done all these things to get there and then it worked. And it's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. I love that analogy. So I'm going to ask you, put you on the spot and ask you what landfalls, when you think back on all the landfalls you made... Beyond question, Tahiti. Yeah, tell me about that. Tahiti is a 5,000-foot-tall peak 
I think Mount Orohena is the name of it. And uh, and I still vividly remember sailing up to Orohena, uh, that island, Papieti, and and the main island of Tahiti, uh, in the Catch Celebes. And we were racing, not effectively, but we were racing to Tahiti. I can't remember the year. That's along with names. That's one of the things I don't do well is the years, <laughs> and we did a number of sail changes. The crew had gotten pretty good on the boat after all the days we had sailed, so there were some changing conditions as we approached the island, and it was not fierce. It wasn't blowing hard. The trade winds were weak, and in due course, as we went through our sail inventory, in these changing conditions, we got offshore breezes and the smell of vanilla came to us off the shore. And as we sailed up toward the finish line, and I don't remember where the finish line was, the sunlight began to illuminate the top of the mountain. Unforgettable. Wow. <laughs> yes. The other big landfall is coming into San Francisco, which mm. never pales. Uh, never pauls is the right word, I guess. Have you ever seen one of these uh, Easter eggs like where you sort of look through the end and there's a little scene inside? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, when you sail into San Francisco quite frequently, the marine layer and the temperature of the, of the Alaska stream that's flowing south all conspire to make fog. And frequently, as you approach San Francisco, you sail out of the fog, and there's the Golden Gate, which serves pretty much like the aperture in the egg. And on the other side of the Golden Gate is this scene, which is the bay waters and the landscape, the, the topography and the buildings and so forth. And on top of all that, it's home. So that is a second landfall, which is close, but it's not as good as Orohena. <laughs> when did you first see that view, make landfall in San Francisco? Well, the first time I sailed back to San Francisco on my own, which is when these these stories are about, there's a different thing when you're in command. Mm. That was a part of what we were talking about before. Yeah. I sailed back to San Francisco in the yacht Kiloa as a young man. And the funny part about that was I was very young. It was my first solo delivery. And uh, I knew that I didn't know Celestial well. I'd been exposed to the sextant and all that. And I went to the bookstore in the Alawai supermarket and spent about four hours in a bookstore looking for books on navigation. And if you look closely, you can find pages that describe the noon site and how to advance sites and so forth, all the critical stuff. And I didn't understand it, but I recognized it for what it was. And I bought probably, I spent a lot of money on books. And I got all these books and went aboard this boat. Figuring you'd just figure it out while you were... Exactly, yes. <laughs> and uh, which bespeaks a certain amount of confidence and a certain awareness that the ocean is as vast as it really is. Anyway, I put to sea in hard weather, and I didn't want to be in, in the Alawai Basin when it blew hard. She was a wooden boat built by stone, and she was leaking along the rails, and so there was water in the boat and, you know, drips on the leeward side. <clears throat> and I remember thinking to myself, I don't need to study all this stuff now because, you know, I can DR my way back if we have a problem. And about the third day, I was in my bunk, and the conditions hadn't changed materially. And I remember thinking, ah, I better do the celestial thing. 
and I started doing Celestial. We had a perfect landfall in San Francisco. That was my first one. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you learn something along the way. Oh, yeah. You learn something every time you go out. Yeah. Back to Wanderbird. Before you were in control and captain. I was never a skipper on Wanderbird. Right. I'm saying before. <clears throat> you did make landfall in San Francisco when you were a young child aboard yes. Wonderbird. They're in the, they're, it's in the, on the cover, in fact, of the video, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. It's a nice picture. My father is, I think, sitting on the bulwarks of the port side. My mother is somewhere like the butt of the bowsprit on the center line. And I am on the very tip of the bowsprit facing forward, a straddle of the bowsprit. And we're sailing into San Francisco. I think we were the first yacht to pass under the bridge in 37 or whatever it was. And my sister is on the bowsprit as well. Let's stay with Wanderbird just for, for a moment. What do you think you and children who, who grow up on the water, when you grew up at sea, it was very uncommon. Nowadays, there are many more families who are off cruising in a very different manner, obviously. But what do you think children who, who grow up on the water experience and learn that children on shore don't? It's manifold. Children, I read someplace that if children... If adults continue to learn at the same rate that youngsters do, you know, up to the age of five, then we'd be very, very much better off. You know, children learn so much. They crawl around the floor. They find out about electrical plugs and the texture of the carpet and how to stand up, all this stuff. And they do all that very quickly. So a youngster growing up on a sailboat is going to learn all kinds of things about balance, coordination, uh, he's going to have the opportunity to be in the immediate presence of his parents who are caring, presumably caring and, and uh, intelligent. If he's very fortunate, they will be teaching him with some kind of correspondence course, which is a different kind of education than you get in the public schools. Uh, all of those things mitigate in their favor, but you're actually thinking about the sailing part of it. I've already described what the effects were for me. What I didn't say, I guess, was that I had that goal, which was realizable. And to a large extent, I've, I realized the goal I had. I wanted to have a, have a vessel of my own. I wanted to be in command. I wanted to be capable. And I did that. So those things are present for any kid growing up on a boat, provided the parents bring the right thing to it. <clears throat> but that's always the case, isn't it? You've sailed many, many miles on many different boats, um, but the boat that you built for yourself, Flash Girl, uh, I'm curious about because she was a custom boat, and I'm, I'm wondering how your experiences throughout your lifetime to that point led you and informed your requirements for Flash Girl. What were your must-haves? <laughs> Pretty much in every way, my previous experiences influenced Fast Girl. <clears throat> and I always wanted to have a boat which would be satisfactory for some female. I didn't have a particular female in mind. I was married for 30 years, and that was not a, not a happy union at the end. Uh, so I wanted to have a woman, a boat to handle a woman, and that entails a place to cook, a place to entertain, a place to cuddle, some kind of facilities to staying clean and a certain amount of comfort around each of those. And there was no question in my mind that this was going to be a voyaging boat. It's going to be going to sea a high percentage of the time. 
if you look at the statistics, you'll find that most yachts in the marina go out very rarely. And uh, when they do, they don't go very far. And I did some research on this, and, and something like 2% of the yachts in the harbor are active, according to the harbor masters. And that means being used more than twice a month. Wow. <laughs> That's always been depressing to me when I walk around a marina and look at the boats that obviously aren't going out. So the, the boats that I saw looking for the big dry boat, I actually went to brokers and I told them, look, I've got a fair amount of experience. I don't want you to show me anything that has a taff rail or I don't even want a bowsprit. And I certainly don't want fiddles and all that stuff that goes with this plastic teak boats that come out of Hong Kong. They either didn't listen or didn't believe, and they showed me a variety of junk, mm -hmm. which I knew wouldn't sail well and I wouldn't be satisfactory. So Flash Girl eventuated because I had a heart attack, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago now, and uh, when I was recuperating, the woman I was with at the time, she asked a couple of holistic questions. The first question was, when you get well again, are you going to continue sailing? Which was a strange question to me. I never thought about not sailing. Mm -hmm. The second holistic question was, when you sail, what are you going to, how are you going to do it? What's it going to be? Which is very formative for me. And uh, she got me thinking along the right avenue. Because I'd done a lot of racing and I you know, wasn't very excited about it anymore. So I decided after this second question that that uh, I was going to sail for myself, uh -huh. no longer other people. I've been racing other people's boats. You know, somebody that's got a nice big yacht and they want to be competitive, so they contact me and I help them sail the boat or sail it for them. So I was looking for a boat. As I say, I visited brokers. I had already visited brokers. I couldn't find anything I liked, not even close. And so I started thinking about new boats. Mm -hmm. that, you know, I looked for designs that I thought might be suitable. I continued sailing, of course. The heart attack more or less went away. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was sailing a lot with Jonathan Livingston, and he was sailing in a Wiley 39, okay, which is what Flash Girl is. <clears throat> so she had a good motion. Uh, she was pretty easy to handle. She was big enough for the purposes, although the layout was, you know, very pedestrian. I one day called... Tom Wiley, and said, you know, I really like a punk dolphin. It seems like a nice boat. What's the story? I mean, there's a mold and all that stuff, and we got all the right answers. And so I started building it. I told him what I wanted. I told him the same things that I told you. A place to sleep, place to cuddle, place to get clean, place to cook, entertain. And he drew a rudimentary layout. And I purchased a hull with the engine installed from Westerly Marine towed it north behind Jonathan's truck on a borrowed trailer, 18-hour trip, put it in a friend's shed, on a piece of property belonging to a friend under a shed we had built together, started working on it. And I'm not a boat a shipwright by any manner means. All I am is a determined <laughs> individual, reasonably bright, willing to learn things and to use tools. It took me nine years. Nine years? Yes. And I incorporated everything that I could possibly think of, which was any way practical. Yeah. Wanted to have pressure water. Yeah. Wanted to have hot water uh -huh. off the engine. Three quarters of the energy in engines goes to heat, as you may know. So if you use the heat exchanger, you get hot water sure. in five minutes of firing up the engine. 
good stuff. Even in the tropics, you like hot showers, or at least I do. Yeah. They wanted to have a double berth. You talk a bit about the comforts that you wanted. Mm -hmm. And you knew this boat needed to be able to go to sea. But you'd been racing on racing machines mm -hmm. for years. Yes. Were there sailing requirements you needed it to meet? Yes. Fundamentally, the, the answer to that question is this. In my philosophy, when the weather gets really nasty, you're not concerned about the boat. You're concerned about yourself. So the boat needs to be robust. And fundamentally, what I was using was, or wanted to use, was technology, which was a couple of years old. No newer than that. The old adage that the boat can take more than the yes, a good boat takes can. care of you almost completely. Yeah, in the seaway. So, and I didn't plan to go to the Arctic, and I, you know, you can't make a boat which is good for everything. John Guswell is on record. You know the name John Guswell? Sure, sure. Okay, John Guswell, who's a friend of mine, is on record as saying there is a sea condition which will take any boat. And so it's wise to avoid places where those conditions are frequent. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. What um, Was it difficult not to have the speed that you had gotten used to in racing? Well, that's a good question. Actually, Flash Girl is not as fast as I'd like her to be. She's not as fast as she looks. and uh, But she's the same speed as Jonathan's boat. You know, she's a good she's a good sailboat for the 32-foot waterline she is. Yes, I'd like her to be faster. Yeah. But they're, Stan Honey's delivery today, and he had the photographs of the command. She shows the damn thing plowing into waves and, you know, spray and water after the mast. And it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything on a boat is a compromise, yeah, right? Well, if you're gonna... well, yeah, pretty much. But I, I wasn't willing to do that. Yeah. And uh, the modern boats are pretty much vertical at the ends and very fine, so they can go upwind in a seaway. Uh, I wanted reserve buoyancy. And I had long design conversations with Wiley. He was wonderful as a designer. He's completely open and flexible and willing to accommodate his designs to whatever the owner wanted, really. Since you mentioned Comanche, she was the first mono hull to be able to stay in front of a weather system, take advantage of that, and race across the Atlantic, breaking the record. I take exception to what you just said on the count of... She wasn't the first boat that could do that. Okay. She did it spectacularly, partially because of Stan's contribution. But uh, he selected not just the weather window, but the sea condition. And that boat does well in smooth water. And he said the biggest sea they saw was 18 inches tall. Huh. And he said it was dull as dishwater. I mean, they're setting a record and going really fast, but nothing to do. <laughs> Beam reaching in 25 knots of wind for four or five days. Yeah. Pretty dull. All the same sails. <laughs> uh, I used to read as much as I could on the subject. I said I wanted to be good at something, and I didn't, I felt... At the age of 14, I felt that you could be a good shoemaker, you could be a good gardener, but you wanted to be really good near the top of your game. Yeah. And that's the way I felt about sailing. I read everything. John Illingworth is a character I met 
when I was doing the America's Cup in 58, uh, America's Cup trials, want to be accurate. And uh, he wrote an excellent book wherein he spoke about the speed at which storm systems transited the Atlantic. And as you are probably aware, the Atlantic is a big deal in yachting because of England and the United States being separated by that ocean. The Pacific is just as wild in the northern reaches as the Atlantic. But we read a lot more about the Atlantic than we do the other one. Anyway, Illingworth wrote a book, and in the book he mentioned that the storm systems advance at such and such a speed. And so it's my concept at that stage is that we could design a small boat which would be able to go fast enough to stay with the system. That was that was a long time ago. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, there have been many boats that could stay with the system. When I sailed with Huey Long, <laughs> I tried to write an article about his technique. Huey was a, was a merchant seaman. Okay. And he was absolutely tyrannical about entering the log every half hour on the stroke. And he wanted the, he wanted the barometric pressure and the speed and the direction, and he wanted wind velocities. And it didn't dawn on me until very late in the program that what he was doing was finding the isobars where the wind would be best. Hmm. He was way ahead of his time, and he had lots of success, partially as a result of that. So that system that I remember from Illingworth and those early days, they've been around a long time. Tell me about some of the races, those competitive races that mm. stick out in your memory. Various races stand out for different reasons. You know, some races, it, it just goes so swimmingly well that, you know, I remember it fondly because the spinnaker went up and down just the way it's supposed to. I remember sailing in, in Weatherly in 58, when we were being eliminated, but I had designed and sort of mastered a jibing technique, which ultimately was copied by the other boats. That was very satisfying. There were lots of frustrations sailing in Weatherly. Arthur Knapp was in charge. <laughs> Funny story about Arthur. When he came to the boat, he said wisely, he said, uh, I can see him standing in his blue jacket and his red shorts. I don't think he was wearing a cap. He had a pipe. He always smoked a pipe. So he started talking to the assembled crew about terminology. And he wanted everybody to understand his terminology so that the right things would happen on schedule. <laughs> and he said, for example, this is this device we use to tension the luff of the mainsail is called a Cunningham. And uh, it's called Cunningham because of Briggs Cunningham, who first used it on his International One design. He then said, now... We're going to call this other thing something else. And everybody immediately thought, asshole. <laughs> and I can't remember the thing he was talking about, but I remember the moment. Uh, Weatherly ultimately defended the cup with Moss Becker steering, as you may know. We didn't do very well under Arthur. He, he changed the Moss Becker changed the boat, improved it. So races that I found most satisfying... I think I'd have to say the six-meter race that I sailed in, uh, here's the situation. The Olympic trials are being held in Helsinki or someplace. Blackhuller was in command of the six-meter. And this was the eliminations preceding to the year when Jimmy Carter canceled the U.S. participation. So Blackhuller is in Helsinki. 
And I got the command of the boat. And so we were sailing in Seattle, outside Shilshol, in the Sound, not in the lake. Ted Turner was there with his America's Cup crew. And the previous year, he'd won the America's Cup sailing courageous with Robbie Doyle and all these red-hot characters from the East Coast. I had the boat, the Black Alert, assembled, and I was steering it, and I had a pretty good crew, including David Vitor, who was, he was really good. We go out and we win the first race. And the press shows up at the dock, and they interview Ted Turner. I can't even remember what position he had. Same thing the second race. Same thing the third race. And it was the fourth race before they came over and talked to me. <laughs> One of the things that had happened in the course of the six-meter racing was I had been in San Diego, and I saw the Purse Saner fleet there. And there was a big Purse Saner with a huge boom, and at the top of the boom was this rotating device with which they recovered the nets. And it was hydraulically driven. And it was just a big spool. And so the nets came over in the water, and the fish fell out, and the nets stacked up on the other side. And I thought, hmm, I could adapt that for taking down a spinnaker. So I built such a thing, just dreamed it up and fabricated it out of an Anderson's yard. It was two bicycle rims with a bunch of guts strung between them. It's, it makes a beautiful form when you go diagonally across between the two circles. And I cover it with fiberglass. I think I weighed 12 pounds. And we mounted this underneath the hatch, which had been uh, intentionally formed nice and round on the edges. And we put a pull string in the middle of the spinnaker. And the result was you could carry the spinnaker to the mark. And as, you, as the boat began to turn, presumably the new backstay would have been set and all the guy back aft would be trimming the main and one guy or two guys would be pulling in on the headsail and the other guy would pull the snuffer. Well, there came a race against Turner where it was rare. He was leading me going into the bottom mark. And he said, you know, it's very easy to talk. It wasn't blowing very hard. And he said, you're not going to get room. And so I jibed and sailed outside his track. Prior to doing that, I'd give every indication I was going to try for the inside overlap, which means that he would get closer to the mark. And so when he got down to the bottom mark, when he turned the boat from downwind to his upwind course, he had to sail through, had to turn the boat through I want to say 120 degrees. <clears throat> and I, on the other hand, had gone off to starboard, giving Ted plenty of room at the mark, and I came in sort of broad reaching with the spinnaker, going like hammers of hell. I hit the mark, we doused the spinnaker, and we passed him within two lengths of the mark. Wow. That was fun. Because <laughs> the spinnaker came down at the last moment. Oh, yeah. We carried the spinnaker right to the mark. It's no joke. We knew how to do it, and it worked. <laughs> it's smooth water, and the little bit of weight in the bow didn't make any difference in these <clears> conditions, <throat> the 12 pounds I mentioned. I'm curious your thoughts on innovation in sailing, because what you're talking about is innovations for racing. The innovation continues with the foiling boats, and things continue to move ahead. What are your thoughts on where we are today? Well, I'm probably a jaundiced person to ask. I value seamanship and sea-keeping ability very highly. And most of the innovations are in racing. And as you mentioned, foils and things of that sort, they're beyond fragile. 
you know, <laughs> they have high elements of danger in certain ways, I think. I haven't sailed with a foil boat other than the Lithoptery, the, the, the trimaran that came to San Francisco. And it's the first time I ever went 40 knots, and it was, you know, it was interesting. <laughs> it, I wasn't thrilled. I admire the innovations, particularly in rigs. When you ask that question, my mind turns to the evolution in sailing as it's happened. It used to be commercial and used to be function-oriented. Pilot ships like pilot vessels like Wanderbird, things of that sort. Fishing smacks on the Chesapeake. That went away when com commercial sail went away. All of that disappeared. It became a yachting game. So instead of carrying 20,000 pounds of wool around Cape Horn and up to London, people started going around Cape Horn in trimarans and things like that, and sometimes east to west, but not often. So it's a radically different game. Technology is driven only by speed, and the fact that you have to finish to win. So that's the only reason they make them as strong as they do. I learned about Comanche that she doesn't have any core forward of the mast. She's single skin with a lot of frames inside, a lot of stringers. And that's because of delamination problems from slamming. What do I think about all this technology? Well, <laughs> I'm not 100% in favor. I've totally lost interest in the racing scene. The racing trimarans and catamarans that they're using don't excite me at all. Yeah. And I didn't even go look at the, at the race in San Francisco, with, you know, watch it on television. Most fun I've had with the America's Cup lately is I watched a rerun of some races that were sailed in the Rocky Gulf in 12 meters. No, that wasn't 12 meters, America's class boats, and that was pretty exciting. Crossing tacks, covering, you know, all that stuff. Let's now take a step back to what you were talking about, and, and Wanderbird. What are some of your fonder memories? Do you actually remember going around the Horn at four? I remember very little about Cape Horn. I was, you stopped sailing in schooner when I was nine. Cape Horn was when I was four. Hmm. And I have one memory of Cape Horn, and that was the schooner is hove to, mm -hmm. the wheel is lashed, my mother is sitting in the wheel box knitting. Uh, it's a remainder of a gale. The seas are running very tall. And I don't know how tall they were, between 50 and 60 feet, I think. But my sister and I were playing on deck. We were swinging on the reef points. That's one of the few things I remember. My mother was knitting something red. <laughs> it's amazing how colors can stick with you. That's the only recollection I have from that. But there is one earlier recollection. And this involves a different kind of a sea story. Wanderbird was in the east coast of Britain. <clears throat> And she was not long in my father's hands. I don't know how long. And there was a big storm coming, and he was aware of it. And so he put to sea. He wanted to be at sea rather than whatever the harbor was. So he's going fast on Port Tack, somewhere, I don't know, 100 miles east of the east coast of England, <clears throat> in the North Sea, which is a notoriously bad place to be. Anyway, he goes out there, and he's, he told me this in person. He said, I was down below... I heard this almighty crash, and I thought maybe the mast had gone. And he came on deck, and about 30 feet of the windward bulwarks had been atomized. So what he called a chance sea had struck the schooner on her port side and took away the bulwarks. So the schooner was no longer fit to stay at sea. So he turned the schooner 180 degrees and started racing 
sailing as hard as possible back to where he'd come from. Now he's on starboard tack, and the broken parts are underwater, so it's letting in water at a hell of a rate. But I remember that because it was that much tension. I must have been yeah. two or three. You talk about feeling very comfortable aboard. Was there ever fear? No, never. Yeah. Never had fear at all, and not in any boat. Really? Yeah. Well, I, I take that back. I brought a Cal 40 back from from Mexico one time, and it pounded so badly that it crossed my mind that I should get close to the shore in case the damn thing broke up. And that was my first experience with severe pounding, and it impacted my relationship with Stan Honey. He owned, at that time, a Cal 40 and was very fond of it. He's still sailing it. And so the next time I saw Stan Honey, after this, an article had been printed, somebody like you had asked me, uh, Richard Richard uh, Spindler had asked me if there's any boats I disliked, which is close to the same thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I told him about the Cal 40 experience, and I, I, I vowed I would never go to sea in a Cal 40 again. And I haven't, and I won't. There's all kinds of things wrong with him. Anyway, <laughs> Stan loves this boat, and he's done well with it. There are a lot of fans of the Cal 40 out there who will be disappointed to hear you say that. But... Well, they no, they'll just reject it, that's all. They won't be disappointed. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about that construction. Those boats were built by Jensen Marine, the Cal 40s, the Cal 39s, the Cal 34s and stuff. So there was a guy named Ralph Croker who had a 39, which is almost the same size as the 40, same kind of construction, sort of a thin keel, a single, single layup hull. And he raced to the Farallons. Those boats had a settee berth on each side of the center of the boat, the keel was in the you know the middle of the bottom, so there was a floor, cabin sole of some kind, flat, probably teak and holly. Then there was a settee. The face of the settee would be a piece of plywood running fore and aft, and joining the bulkheads, port and starboard. So Rolf had, like a good seaman, had put down a spare halyard in case he lost a halyard mm-hmm. out there. Anyway, he goes to sea. He sails to the Farallons, and he's a pretty hard thrash on starboard tack. And he comes back, and he can't find his halyard. And the halyard had been made up, coiled, and then you'd put something around the center and pass it through and latch it off. And he couldn't find his halyard. And he said, I know I threw it down the hatch, and I just can't find it. It had gone underneath the port side settee, so the boat had flexed enough to open a hole, and it went through. So... It, as far as I'm concerned, that proves my point about that kind of construction. <laughs> well, let's talk about a boat that was built solidly enough that she's lasted for many, many years, Wanderbird. But she was recently in a tragic accident, I'm sure you know about. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction to that? <laughs> I studied it as closely as I could in order to get some kind of idea of what happened. And I concluded that several things led to the collision. A general lack of awareness on the part of whoever was in command. And my analysis suggests that whoever was in command was not fully in command. He wasn't really on top of his game or on top of the crew who was on the boat or the people who were on the boat. There were 43 people on board, all told, six of whom I think were crew. But they're volunteers. We know that. There's a club which supports Eld 5 and... 350 people strong. Elb 5 is the, yeah. is the current name of Wonderbird. Correct. That was her name when she was launched. 
that would be the fifth in a series of maybe 13 boats built to that design. Hmm. The sequence that you're talking about is that there's an AIS track showing the two vessels coming down the Elbe River. They're headed northwest, and the schooner is sailing with a staysail, headsail of some sort, and a foresail, not much sail at all. Probably doing, maybe if she's lucky, five knots on Port Tack. And she's on the starboard side of the channel, the east side. Sooner or later, you have to tack. <laughs> so she did. She tacked, which meant that she was going to be crossing the shipping lanes directly, and but she's going slowly. And so the video shows the oncoming vessel, Astro Sprinter, at some distance. And the point of view of the video, have you seen it? Yeah. Is back by the rudder post. Right, right. And you and look it... over the leeward rail, and there's Astro Sprinter, you know, bigger than life. And you hear on the soundtrack, you hear five blasts, and I time the distance, they're, they're 10 seconds apart, and you know, completely unmistakable. It means hazard, imminent danger. And the quotes on the video are, I believe, as follows. What is he doing? It's in German, of course. Why is he doing that? Somebody says, bear off. And somebody says, hard to port. And then we're going to hit him, you know, right on, which is what happened. You see in the, in the video, you see some guys volunteer to push the tiller to port, which could be their response to hard to port. And had the person who said bear off really been in, in control, then she could have borne off. Because as I reconstruct the situation, she turned through about 45 degrees to achieve a more or less right angle collision. And she could have turned 45 degrees leeward with equal facility, probably better, because all the headsails would have been drawing. So how could this happen? This could only happen if the master was not really in command. It's such a shame. <clears throat> it is a shame. She just had gone through a... A huge refit. The schooner, the schooner went up into Denmark, a place called Vita Sande, in September or October of last year. They took all the planking off. They replaced half of the frames. They replaced the wooden keel. They replaced all the timbers forward of the rudder post. When was the last time you saw her? Then. I saw her in the construction, reconstruction. Do you know where the funding came for that, and if there's funding Partially to from the government, but I yeah. don't know about the rest of it. Yeah, I'm just wondering, curious if they're going to try and rebuild. After oh, yeah, the they're going to rebuild her. Yeah. She's a national monument. I mean, think about it. She's 130-something years old. She's the last of, of a breed of, of sailing pilot vessels, which were designed and built by the German government, and they were spectacularly well-built. She's the last one of the 13 sailing. She was back in Hamburg for one week before she was hit. Oh. <laughs> oh. But they'll patch her up. It's yeah. not a problem. Well, that's good to hear. I'm she essentially sure went aground on in the bulb bow of Astro Sprinter. She filled with water, no? Oh, yeah. She sank, no question. The grounding, if you want to call it that, it was a ramming. It broke about a five-foot diameter hole just above the keel and about halfway between the foremast and the stem. Construction of the vessel is such that the planking leading to the stem and the bulwarks and, and everything I can see in the picture indicated they were not started at all. So they bashed a hole in the boat and that was it. And they towed her uh, with extra pumps and so forth into shallow water. 
And so she sank, I guess, 30 feet, <clears throat> maybe, maybe less. She draws 11 feet. And so she sank in 20, 30 feet. And uh, they pumped her out within the week, and they took her off to a boatyard someplace, and they're working on her. <laughs> she will sail again. She will sail again, That's if you call it sailing. <laughs> when the schooner was originally built, all schooners have a major problem. They have the biggest sail aft. The mainsail is aft. And so almost always they have weather helm. Mm. And the reason you have weather helm is that the center of lateral resistance is way too far forward relative to the sail plant. So my father got aboard the schooner, and he wanted to have a sailing boat. He was not particularly interested in history, except that he wanted a boat which was, had a history of being capable. Yeah. And he found that in the schooner. And, but he put a tall topmast on the foremast and quite a long bowsprit and put headsails out there. So he turned her into a really decent sailboat. They have reverted to their original rig. So she's got very small, not very effective headsails, no big topsails that go up to the main, the fore topmast. And you see her sailing around in the Elbe River with a reef in the main all the time. That's why. That's fascinating. And two engines, two engines and two propellers. And there was no engine when you were sailing no. on her? No. I've seen some of my father's logs, and he was enormously energetic. He sailed that schooner two or three times a week frequently. And there's pictures of you climbing up and sliding down the, the rigging. Yeah. Kept you fit? <laughs> well, it, it bears on your earlier question of what kids growing up on a sailboat can experience. They learn confidence. You know, we are primates. We tend to forget that. The whole part of being exceptional is you can forget your origins. What haven't we touched on that you would like to talk about? There's a recurrent theme in any of my answers to your questions, and is that there is a philosophy. And the philosophy is important. The rest of it is detail. Share with us your philosophy. When you get into hard weather, the boat should be secure and safe, and you don't worry about the boat, you worry about yourself. That's part of the philosophy. You need to have a boat which goes upwind so that you can take the boat to windward if you have to. You need to carry small sails. You need to carry a sea anchor in the event you get into those really severe conditions. And you need to know how to handle them. All of these things are part of the deal. Part of my joy in Flash Girl is that I incorporated as many of these ideas as I could into the construction. And part of the philosophy is, is the details, however good they are, in a good construction, they vanish into the mix. You don't even notice them. It's just a pleasure to use. All the details come together, and it's a pleasure. Well, thank you very much for sharing your stories and your philosophy. It's been a pleasure, a real pleasure speaking with you. You're most welcome. Sometimes I feel embarrassed that people want to hear what I have to say because it seems very straightforward and natural to me. Well, I think it's because it comes so naturally to you mm. that people are interested. So thank you. Most welcome. I had such a wonderful time talking to Commodore, and just as we finished up the interview, his wife Nancy returned home, and we spent nearly another hour chatting first about their sailing trip together, and then the Commodore shared his thoughts and knowledge about sea anchors with me, and I could have gone on asking him questions about seamanship for hours. 
If you'd like to learn more and hear more of Commodore's philosophy, you can watch a beautifully produced film called Wark Tompkins, A Lifetime at Sea. That can be found on the Life on the Water website. If you haven't seen this website, I highly recommend it. They're really nice films, about five of them now, I believe. And they're, they're about $5 to watch, but worth it. Each one is a, a profile of uh, a luminary in the sailing world. And then, of course, there's the film I mentioned at the top, the black and white documentary about Commodore's childhood aboard Wanderbird. Oh, and then, of course, the video that Commodore and I discuss that shows Wanderbird's collision with a tanker, or L5 now is the name of the boat's collision. Uh, you can find on YouTube if you just search album number five, Collision. It'll pop right up. That's it for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the program. Thanks for listening. And until next time, smooth sailing. Smooth sailing.